Beth Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, March 24th, 2020. Coming up, University of Colorado sleep researcher Mark Opp talks about the interaction between sleep and the immune system. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. First, an update on the COVID-19 pandemic. There have been some new findings about the coronavirus in the past week, and I wanted to pass these on because they have implications for a lot of people taking a commonly prescribed class of drugs. Now we have to start out talking about viruses, which are weird little things somewhere between living and not. When they're floating around in droplets of respiratory fluid or sitting on surfaces waiting to infect you, they're completely inert. No metabolism, no reproduction, nothing. They consist of a tiny little genome, that's a handful of genes, wrapped up in an envelope made of protein and sometimes lipid, which is a fat-like substance. But once they get inside your cells, we'll call them host cells, they become active and actually hijack the cell to do their dirty work for them. To get inside one of your cells, the virus has to first attach to something very specific on the cell. Any virus that causes an infection in any living creature will have a unique structure on its surface that can match up in a lock and key kind of interaction with a protein on the host cell. Once it's in, the viral genetic material uses the host cell's protein building machinery to make more viruses. These will eventually burst the cell, killing it. Some of the viruses that emerge will attach to uninfected cells in the neighborhood, whereas others will be washed up and out of the infected person to potentially infect others. Here's where things start to get really interesting with the coronavirus. The virus gets into your lungs when you inhale droplets that an infected person has coughed out or when you touch your face after touching a surface where one such droplet has landed. The virus has to get pretty deep into your lungs before it finds cells with the right kind of protein it can attach to. These cells are called pneumocytes, and they're found in a part of the lung called the alveolus. And these are really important cells, those pneumocytes, because this is where what's called gas exchange happens. In other words, oxygen gets into our bodies and CO2 leaves here. The protein that the virus attaches to is called angiotensin-converting enzyme. I'm going to call it ACE for short, A-C-E, ACE. Angiotensin is a substance made by the body whose main function is to increase blood pressure. But before it can do that, it has to be modified slightly into a form called angiotensin II. ACE does that. Now, a lot of older adults have high blood pressure, which predisposes them to other diseases such as heart disease and stroke. A common medication used to control high blood pressure is an ACE inhibitor. This is a drug that prevents ACE from acting on angiotensin. Professor Mark Ops, if angiotensin doesn't lab get converted into angiotensin two, he's then your blood pressure doesn't go in up. So here's the weird thing: when the coronavirus takes ago, over the ACE protein, your body responds by making more of it. This in turn means more angiotensin here's could Mark be converted and blood pressure could rise. But conversely, the drug could prevent the virus from entering the cell, thus protecting against infection. There's currently a lot of discussion in the medical community as to whether or not people taking ACE inhibitors should discontinue them. No consensus yet, and everyone is recommending, if you take these drugs now, continue. A related fact is 
that ACE is found in other organs besides the lung, such as kidney and intestine. Because ACE is the cellular entry point for the virus, any organ where ACE is found can become infected with the virus. And once in, the virus is inside the cells, those cells can't do their normal jobs because they have become virus manufacturing plants. So this is the reason why other types of disease besides respiratory symptoms can occur. And as a final aside, one recent study found that increasing temperature and humidity decreased the transmission of the coronavirus. This is probably because when there is more water vapor in the air, respiratory droplets condense with the water and fall out more easily. The same would be true in warmer air as the drops enlarge. A simple way to increase humidity is to run a humidifier. Of course, this isn't so easy to do in large open areas where people tend to congregate. As people age, they lose muscle mass. This is why the elderly look and are frail. Not only does this predispose them to falls, which can be deadly, but muscle loss has disruptive effects on the entire body. The reason is complicated, but in a nutshell, when you use your muscles by exercising, they sustain some damage. Though this sounds bad, in fact, this is how muscles grow. In the process of healing the damage, muscles release chemical messages that cause some inflammation. Again, this sounds bad, but the body responds by making an appropriate anti-inflammatory response. This response, or its lack, also explains some of the loss of our immune system as we age. And that, in turn, explains why, in part, the elderly are more susceptible to diseases like the coronavirus. How to prevent this muscle loss? It's a two-step strategy. One, exercise, and two, eat more protein. As people age, their digestive systems get worse at digesting and transporting the dietary protein into the blood, where it can be sent to the muscle that needs it to grow. One solution is to spread out protein intake over the course of the day. A recent study from the University of Birmingham found that people tend to eat protein unevenly during the day. The researchers looked at the dietary intake of young, middle-aged, and old individuals with a particular focus on the amount, pattern, and source of the protein consumed. All the participants completed a food diary over a three-day period, weighing out every single food item consumed. The scientists found that old people, compared to young and middle-aged individuals, were more likely to eat a lower-quality protein source, such as bread, at lunchtime. Changing the pattern of food intake is one way to maintain muscle mass in the aging population. This study was published last week in the journal Frontiers in Nutrition. Let's say that you're a fruit farmer. You harvest many bushels of fruit, transport them to market, and sell them. Ideally, you want the fruit to ripen just after it hits the market in order to fetch the best price possible. You don't want the fruit to ripen during transport because it could bruise very easily and be overripened in the store. So how does the fruit ripen? And how do farmers and transporters go about controlling it? Well, plants produce a hormone, ethylene, that controls the fruit ripening. Ethylene is a gas, it's a small molecule, and it moves easily inside a plant and into its cell membranes. The gaseous ethylene is at trace levels and functions as a messenger to stimulate or regulate fruit ripening. Ethylene also triggers opening of flowers and shedding of leaves. Fruits emit low levels of ethylene. This triggers ripening not only in itself, but in adjacent fruit. So one ripe fruit influences the ripening of its neighboring fruit. 
Here's an experiment you can do at home, and many of us have done this. Take an unripe avocado and put it in a plastic bag with a ripe banana. Then take a second unripe avocado and place it away from any plants or fruits. The avocado next to the banana will ripen much more quickly. How did people figure this out? It began with observations. Over 100 years ago, farmers noticed that having kerosene lamps inside a shed where fruit was stored would cause the fruit to ripen more quickly. In the 1920s and 1930s, scientists figured out that it was the ethylene from the lamps that triggered this. They also figured out that ethylene was produced by plants in essentially all of their parts, leaves, roots, flowers, fruits, and seeds. In the modern world, we have fruit ripening rooms that generate trace amounts of ethylene to hasten ripening of fruit so that it all peaks together at just the right time. Researchers are working on better control of ethylene levels for fruit farmers and florists. Researchers have created a porous scaffold from wood in which a platinum catalyst was dispersed. Natural wood is ideal, a porous scaffold, and it breaks down 80 parts per million of ethylene really well. Wood can be delignified, that means softened, and combined with another catalyst. These results were reported in the February 2020 issue of ACS Nano. Professor Mark Opp studies sleep in his lab at the University of Colorado here in Boulder. He's especially interested in the interaction between sleep and our immune systems. Not that long ago, people didn't think there was any relationship between the two, but our understanding of both systems has evolved. Here's Mark Opp to explain. Welcome to the show, Professor Mark Opp. You study a really fascinating topic, and that is sleep. And we all spend a really large proportion of our lives sleeping. So I think people are pretty interested in it. So maybe we can start, before we get into your specific research, we could start by talking about just what exactly sleep is and why it's so important for us. Well, thank you, Beth. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. Uh, and as you've already mentioned, sleep is very important for our health. Um, most of us, will spend approximately one third of our lifespan in sleep. Uh, and it, sleep is something that we take for granted until of course we don't get enough. And we know what it's like to try and perform after um, a night without enough sleep. Um, there are certainly health consequences and I'm happy to speak about some of those health consequences as well as some of the research that we conduct in my laboratory that links sleep and the immune system. So when your brain is sleeping, what is going on? I mean, I know there's different stages, so I guess we could cover those, but um, specifically what is happening that makes it such an important phase of our lives? 
Oh, well, that's an incredibly interesting question because it gets to what the function of sleep may be. And honestly, this has been a topic of interest for millennia. And quite frankly, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to state what the function of sleep is, what sleep does for the brain and the body. And although we have many testable hypotheses and many research groups are working on questions of the function of sleep, fundamentally, we have sort of a minimal understanding of what sleep does for the brain. We know quite a bit about how the brain behaves during sleep, but what that means is a different story completely. Okay, that sounds fair enough. So let's just launch into your research because in terms of the immune system, you actually have a pretty good idea of some of the functions of sleep in terms of modulating our immune system. Right. So just as a a little bit of background, um, it's no surprise to any of us that Chronic insufficient sleep is now at epidemic proportions, certainly in Western society. Um, None of us, it's likely, are getting enough sleep. And the health consequences that are associated with chronic insufficient sleep are things like obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and these are really killers in our society. We know that there are strong... um, statistical links between chronic insufficient sleep across populations and these pathologies. What we don't know as much um, is what are the actual mechanisms that underlie these relationships between chronic insufficient sleep and these diseases. And my lab focuses on sleep disruption and its impact on the immune system, and specifically immune activation that results in inflammation. These diseases that I mentioned are all inflammatory diseases. The common thread is that um, inflammatory mediators and cells that produce inflammatory mediators are increased by chronic insufficient sleep. And it could be that some of the fundamental mechanisms underlying these diseases are due to this inflammatory state that uh, is induced by sleep loss. So does that mean when, let's say, I stay up late for a couple nights, I get up early, I don't get enough sleep, that I'm triggering an inflammatory response that will then affect my general health? The short answer is yes. Uh, We know from controlled laboratory studies using human volunteers that losing as little as four hours of sleep for one night induces an inflammatory response that we can detect in the laboratory. Now, it's not likely that losing four hours of sleep for one night is going to result in a pathology that could kill you. The problem is, of course, when we consistently don't get enough sleep over long periods of time. So that inflammatory response, once it becomes chronic, is very bad for our health. And that's really what most 
sleep researchers in this area are focused on. Not the occasional short night, but this chronic insufficient uh, sleep. So when you don't get enough sleep and you get inflammation going, what exactly is that doing to your immune system? Well, your immune system is activated, and we sometimes refer to this as being primed. So one um, likely scenario is that uh, sleep loss or insufficient sleep results in this chronic inflammatory response, which generally could be perhaps low-grade, the kind of thing that you might not be aware of, you know, with the way you feel or the way you perform, but it's there. And then when subjected to some other more severe trauma, uh, an infection, um, a traumatic brain injury, or something like that, the response to that insult can be exacerbated because the immune system has already been activated or or primed for such a long period of time. Right. And so... I would guess that, like in many other systems, if it's overactivated for too long, it just kind of wears out and gets tired and doesn't work as well. Well, that's definitely part of it. The other part of it is that the downstream responses become uh, detrimental. So let's right. keep in mind that the immune system is important. It's, uh, you know, what keeps us alive in the face of. Uh, invading pathogens and microorganisms. So the immune response is critical to our overall health and well-being. But an immune response that is of too great a magnitude or too long of a duration then becomes very detrimental and no longer helpful. Yeah, and all these systems that are important in keeping us alive, it's not surprising that our brain controls them and monitors them. So going back to sleep, what exactly is it when you don't sleep that has this deleterious effect on the immune system? In other words, how is that signal transmitted between the two systems? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, We understand some of the mechanisms involved, And what seems to be the case is that when you are awake, when your brain is awake, um, certain cell types in the brain, um, neurons and glia, are activated. And over the course of waking, they produce molecules that are secreted and act on receptors and other cell types. So if you are awake for a certain amount of time, a normal normal amount of time across the day, when you go to sleep at night, those um, molecules or those signals will then either be cleared or no longer um, uh, signal that the brain is active in the same way. So there's some recovery that occurs through the course of the night. However, at night, if your sleep is disrupted or you're not getting enough sleep, these immune activation signals will be continually produced. And now your systems, your immune system in the brain, the innate immune system, will be uh, activated at a time when it should be clearing some of these substances and no longer activated from the perspective of the immune 
immune response. Okay. So I think this idea might come as a surprise to some people that there is a part of the immune system that's active in the brain. Yes, we call this the innate immune system, and uh, it's only been relatively recently that we've come to understand that the brain is not actually an immune-privileged site. We used to believe a few decades ago that the brain was immune-privileged, which meant that the brain couldn't get an infection, that the brain didn't have an immune response. But now we know that that is most definitely not the case. The brain does have an, an immune system, and it does respond to the same types of challenge that uh, the peripheral immune system has to respond to. Infection of pathogens, uh, trauma in the form of physical tissue injury or something like that. Right. And another interesting thing that you've written on is that when you have an infection, then that can actually go in the opposite direction and make you sleep more. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yes. Early in my career, it was very difficult for us to publish papers that demonstrated there was immune activation in the brain that was linked to sleep. Part of that reticence to believe our data initially was because of the fact that there was this idea that was pervasive that the brain was an immune-privileged site. Now, of course, many, many, many research laboratories all around the world have focused their research efforts on the immune system in the brain and the idea that regulatory mechanisms for sleep in the brain and regulatory mechanisms for the immune response in the brain are linked. And we now have very good evidence that some, <clears throat> excuse me, some immune signals and molecules in the brain actually function in normal sleep regulation. So now this is well accepted, but 30 or 40 years ago it was not. Right. And another intriguing finding relating to the immune system is that if people don't get enough sleep, then they don't respond as well to a vaccine. So if you're going to get vaccinated, you should be sure and get a good night's sleep beforehand. Absolutely. And probably for a few nights at least. There is some emerging data now that um, demonstrates this is actually the case. Vaccines are simply more effective when your immune system is functioning normally. And if you haven't slept well before the vaccination, your immune system is activated and the antibody response that is so critical to vaccines being successful will simply not manifest to the same extent. And some of the protection that you think you would have from a vaccine will not exist. And is this true in this protective um, function of sleep, that is, is that true for all stages of sleep, or have you isolated it specifically to one stage of sleep? Oh, it's kind of difficult to isolate most things to one stage mm. of sleep, especially with respect to the immune system. For other types of studies in neuroscience, we know that, for example, memory consolidation is most tightly associated or coupled to rapid eye movement sleep. 
but for the immune system, it's much more difficult to attribute specific responses to a single stage of sleep. Right. Yeah. From what you said earlier, it sounds like the protective role of sleep really has to do with you simply not being awake and not making those wake-associated compounds. Yes. I think that's a good way to describe it. Okay. Well, Mark, we're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank you for talking with us today and wish you good luck and continued fascinating findings in your research. Well, thank you, Beth, and it's been a pleasure for me. That was Mark Opp speaking to us about how sleep affects our immune systems. Valuable information during this time of a global pandemic. We'll link to his website on our How on Earth podcast site, and there you can find more information on this topic. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is me, Beth Bennett, and I produce this show, which was expertly engineered by Maeve Conran. Thanks, Maeve. Additional contributions by Angel Shang. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Houses. You can visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, additional information on our guests, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.